Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our weekly political roundup with a focus on foreign interference with former Toronto Star journalist Richard Brennan. Documents show that senior staff in the office of Premier Doug Ford had discussed changes to the Greenbelt months before the province opened up parts of development. Whatever happened to that not touching the Greenbelt promise? <laughs> we'll get into that. And we remember Hamilton philanthropist Margaret Jurovinsky, who passed away this week. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, of course, the news in Ottawa about foreign interference and the continuing investigation by the Parliamentary Committee about that. Uh, this week, of course, we know that Canada expelled a, a Chinese diplomat who allegedly was involved in the plot to intimidate Conservative MP Michael Chong and his family members. But one former intelligence officer now says that Canada needs to kick out more diplomats. His name is Michel Junot Katsuo. And he says there's no reason China has so many people and so many representatives in this country. America is our greatest economic partner, and they have about 80 uh, diplomats here in Canada. So twice as much Chinese, and we have a trade deficit with China. Where's the mistake is coming from? My speculation as an, as an investigator is that, unfortunately, at Foreign Affairs or Global Affairs today, we have some people working naively. Uh, interesting assertion, and, and you know that the, they're here not because they're trying to develop economic ties with this country. They're here to watch out what we're doing and report back to to Beijing. That's that's his take on it, anyway. Anyway, to talk about that and to talk about the investigation and so much more in uh, politics. So pleased to welcome back to the program, uh, good friend Richard Brennan, former journalist with the Toronto Star, who covered Queens Park and Parliament Hill for so many years. Uh, Badger, great to have you back with us. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. Listen, let me ask you first of all about this inquiry that's going on and the foreign interference and you know the the the, the attempt here to by this committee to to try to get to the truth about who knew what when they knew it etc. Uh, I would like to think that they were going to do this on the up and up and it was going to be nonpartisan, but I guess you can't do much in Ottawa that isn't nonpartisan. It's really kind of turned into a, uh, you know, conservatives hate the liberals and the liberals are incompetent and, and the back and forth and say this started with the Harper government. It's It's really, really kind of just degraded itself to, to the extent that it, it seems to be more of a, again, a political football than anything else. Well, it's, it's politicking as worse. You know, people out there must get sick and tired of reading this stuff. You know, it's the liberals and this never happened before until the liberals came into power. There was never foreign influence, which is just a bunch of baloney. I mean, Jenny Burns, a senior aide to uh, Harper saying that, oh, we never knew anything about that. Give me a break. She's, you know, she's, uh, her memory's not the best if she really believes that. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. And I think Canada's been putting up with it and shouldn't put up with it. What good trading partners sends a pack of, uh, you know, uh, spooks, if you will, uh, to your country to try and, you know, undermine the elections, whatever it might be. It's it's not right, and I agree with that uh, former CSIS guy. They should be kicking more of them out. It's it's not right. It's we shouldn't tolerate it, and that should be the end of the end of the story. Just if you if you don't want it, if you're just coming here to mess with their minds, well, maybe you should stay home. 
and you know you need a historical perspective on that. And yeah, I mean, you were around in Ottawa when when these policies were were being developed by the federal government. Uh, and you know, the, remember that the talking point there was: look, at China's an emerging economy; they're probably going to be the number one economy in the world. Uh, I know that they have human rights violations. I know they they have bad intentions. But boy, we've got to make ties with these people, and we seem to do that in spite of all the problems. And and, and just kind of said, okay, let's put blinders on now. Uh, and and as you saw, the, these guys simply took advantage of it. Well, you're right, but we, we for too long we just turned a blind eye to the way that China operates, uh, either at home or abroad, and we, we shouldn't be doing it anymore. That's that's it. I know they're they're a, a trading partner, and we rely on them to a certain extent. But as that CSIS uh, spoke, our person said, that you know, U.S. is our largest trading partner. And we should be, A, protecting ourselves and our largest trading partner as well. And that means really keeping a lid on the number of people that are working, uh, the Chinese diplomats are working out of Ottawa. And and it's got to be a different mindset. But And what bothers me about this is there are things that we need to find out about this, about exactly what decisions were made and by whom. But I, I'm getting a little tired, and, and you get, you know these people, Badger, uh, you know chiefs of staff, etc. And, and this time, as you mentioned, uh, this week it was it was Jenny Byrne who worked around the Harper government, simply saying we were never told about any of this yeah. stuff. That the the people over at CISAs are just rolling their eyes right now because you know damn well that they were informed about this and they chose not to do it. And and, and Jenny Byrne is trying to say that she and 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 Stephen Harper at that time. Uh, we're not told about this. Of course, you know, we're also supposed to believe that Harper didn't know anything about the Senate expense scandal either. Um, you know, so, you know, th- that's their story and they're sticking to it, no matter what the facts say. Well, that's it. I mean, the point is that people don't, you know, they take much of what is, comes out of Ottawa these days, a grain of salt, be it from the government or from the opposition. It's just a bunch of pre-election blather for the most part, that, you know, that's a as uh, Pierre Polyev, the uh, conservative leader, will tell you that Canada's broken and it's about the worst place you could possibly live. Well, nobody, nobody in Canada, or maybe a few, but believe that's true. So it's just, and the government is just as bad uh, with with some of the, the you know, they go from pillar to post, it seems these days, the liberals with some kind of uh, malfeasance of some sort. So it's 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 just loony times that's what it is i think in ottawa now well let's talk about that because there's more examples of it uh one is a story that just resurfaced this week that i think you and i talked about about a year or so ago uh and that is since uh the the, the right wing of the conservative party the extremists as some people would refer uh seem to be calling the shots with the conservative party these days and that's i, I assume why they elected pierre Polyev. Uh, there's a group of what they call, well, they, they used to call themselves center ice conservatives. Now they're center ice Canadians. Uh, they want to broaden the tent, I guess, here. Uh, but they're thinking about uh, forming a conservative party that, that, that you know, reflects the values of the Brian Mulroney's and the Joe Clark's and, and the, the progressive conservatives that they used to be. Uh, we've heard these stories before, but, I mean, there's a lot of prominent names uh, that seem to be in that tent right now. Uh, it, are we ready for another party? And, and what would that do to the political landscape? Well, it would be another, uh, you know, a divisive uh, tactic, if you will, for the conservatives. But I, what we're talking about here, Bill, is a return to yesteryear, a progressive yeah. conservative party. Not, not you know, a, a populist party or a 
right of center populist party or whatever you want to call them. There are a number of conservatives out there who are tired of this very right wing approach to uh, to politics and possibly to governing if uh, if Paul Yev should win. And it's, it's just, they're not cut out for it. People don't, you know, a lot of conservatives, small C conservatives and big C conservatives are, they're afraid of what the future will bring if a populist conservative government gets in with some very, very um, right-wing policies. We've seen this, though, in the States, haven't we? I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, how many Republicans have we seen over the last uh, eight or ten years uh, that long for the days of, of, you know, well, go back to George W. Bush or well, some of them Reaganites, whatever the case might be. But they're upset with the way that Trump and, and some of the uh, the extremists uh, have taken over that party. And, and the, well, the Tea Party started that, I guess, long before Trump was even on the scene. Uh, but they they call the shots. And I'm, I'm hearing the same things that you are, that there are – I've, I've – I've known a number of people that are conservatives that are just are not com- comfortable with this. And, and you know, and it's interesting about the conservative party because they seem to be getting pulled from both ends. The extreme, extreme conservatives uh, broke away and, and, and are now joining, you know, Maxime Bernier with the people's party, not in great numbers, but that's, that's that element. Now the other ones that are saying, this is not really what conservatism is supposed to be all about. Uh, and they're thinking of doing something like this. This is, this is a conservative movement uh, that's starting to splitter right in front of us to a certain extent anyway. Well, well, what it means is again, you know, it'll, it'll destroy the, the, the conservative movement and uh, it'll, you know, it'll be fractioned and uh, they, they just won't be able to mount a, you know, if this catches fire, that is, they won't be able to mount uh, an election strategy if there's if there's uh, different divisions within the conservative movement. And, and it's bad for politics. It's bad for the country, because then we we ended up we end up with a one party rule, not the liberals. Well, I think a lot of people would like to see that change, too. But when you and I were young, <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'm not trying Was to be. Was the Earth you know, cool, Jet Bill? I, I can't. Remember. No, no, yeah, that's I mean, that's the rumor <laughs> I'm hearing too. But the difference between conservatives and liberals was was not that big. And I know that I'm going to make both sides bristle when I say that. But I remember talking to my dear friend Lincoln Alexander uh, when he decided to get into politics. You know, he was a lawyer practicing in Hamilton here. And he says, the only reason I became a conservative is because my law partner was a conservative. And he said, you should run for us. He says, if the other guys had approached me first, because their values were essentially the same. The conservative party, the progressive conservative party uh, back in the 50s, 60s, and probably even into the 70s uh, was was a, a right of center party, not an extreme right, but right of center. The liberals were slightly left of center. And and there were a lot of similarities between the two of them, but, but some big differences too. Now look at where we are in 2023. You've got extremism in the conservative party. Uh, Justin Trudeau has moved the liberal party more left than the NDP are right now. And you've got this great big group of voters in this country that are saying, I can't relate to any of these guys anymore. That's it, Bill. Like It's like, who do you like the least? Yeah. And and that's that's no way that's no way to run a country you know picking somebody because you know well they they possibly will give us less trouble than than the other guy or whatever it it's it's not good politics it's it's not good for democracy and I I tell you I I don't know I mean I wouldn't want to guess what who's going to win the next election but if this 
if this movement to a splinter, the splinter group with the conservatives, get, you know, gets any traction at all, well, uh, they're just handing the next election to the liberals. Which I think is what Justin Trudeau is hoping for, is that uh, that splinter is going to continue, which I think is why he's hanging around. I mean, you know, there's speculation that if Pierre Polyev had not become leader, if Jean Charest had become the leader of the Conservative Party, Trudeau may well have used that speech last weekend in Ottawa as his sayonara speech. But he wants to hang around because he thinks he's got a shot here now. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of people don't want to see him have another shot, Bill. It, there's a lot of animosity out there towards... Uh, not the liberal so much as the prime minister himself. Yeah, but we're with this polarization right now. We're just you know it's 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 making people become disengaged with the political process, and that's that's, that's I think that's dangerous. No, it is. It's not good. I mean, people just throw up their hands and said, "What's what? What's the sense of voting? Uh, you know, nothing changes. I don't. It doesn't affect me directly. It's, they're just all the same. You know, feather their own nest and." Uh, and here I am. I'm still struggling to put food on the table, and that's that applies to a lot of a lot of people these days. So they they just disengage, I, I believe, and that's 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 serious when that happens. Uh, with uh, Richard Brennan, of course, our good friend, longtime uh, Toronto Star reporter uh, at Queens Park and Parliament Hill. I want to change gears. I got a minute or two left here. Uh, and I want to talk about the tragedy that occurred just outside of Ottawa. I, I know you're deeply affiliated uh, with the OPP and, and have been for many, many years. Uh, it's got to be heartbreaking to see an, another officer killed on the line of duty, actually three of them injured and one of them dead. Well, Bill, I just happened to be out on uh, patrol yesterday. Uh, as our readers or listeners, I should say, might know I'm an auxiliary OPP constable. Mm-hmm. And uh, the regular, the regular constable I was with, you know, his his wife called and said, "Look at, why don't you go back into IT? It's a lot less dangerous." And you know, the, this is a career for many of these folks. But, you know, they don't, they don't, they went into policing because they really felt strongly, and they still feel strongly about it. But I'll tell you this: this is a a wound that's hard to heal when. When you uh, see three officers show up to a uh, report of a gunshot and, and they're immediately shot. I mean, it, you know, they get out of the car and they're shot. And this, as, as the commissioner said, it was an ambush. And we can't, I, I don't want people to become inured to this kind of behavior. This is not, this is not the Canada that we grew up in. This is crazy. You know, we're not officers just as we saw, you know, just prior to Christmas with an officer who was just shot, help trying to help somebody out of a ditch. It is, it is downright frightening. 10 officers killed so far. We're not even halfway through the year and 10, six of them here in Ontario, uh, in the line of duty. And, and as you say, the, the pattern here, which is most disturbing, I guess, is these, these, these officers were ambushed essentially. Oh, absolutely. They just got out of their car, you know, like uh, Greg, uh, who was shot before Christmas and, and killed, yeah. uh, he just was getting out of his car to help somebody to make sure that they they'd gone in the ditch just to make sure that they were okay and was shot. And these these three officers showing up just to see you know, investigate what what the problem is, what what's the shooting about, and we got one dead and and uh, one seriously injured and one who was injured is out home now. I understand. It's it's. It is really disheartening, I think, for all of us to, to, to see this happening. 
And let's, well, our, let's, let's, let's hope it doesn't happen. You know, it's, something's got to give. I don't know what it is, but I'll tell you, something has to give. We can't continue like this. Oh, we're going to talk about it later on in the program, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to to comment on it too, because of your your dedication to to the OPP and and, and to your brothers and sisters in in uniform too. And it's it's a heartbreaking day for all of us uh, who care. And it just I think is a stark reminder that every time every time uh, officers respond to a call, they just don't know what they're going to run into. And and the tragedy that we heard about this week is I think underscoring that anyway uh we got a break uh richard as always thanks so much for this uh, enjoy the weekend we'll talk again in a few days i hope okay thanks bill Take Bye-bye. care, richard brennan journalist with the toronto star for many many years and of course as he mentions auxiliary opp officer you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml our good friends at the Narwhal have been doing some research uh, for months now. We've been talking about the Ford government's uh, plan to uh, to make their incursions into the Greenbelt, of course, although they promised like 150 towns uh, not to do it. Uh, Emma McIntosh has been doing some research on this and uh, had to do a little prying and, of course, some freedom of information uh, work to get this done. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show once again to bring us up to speed on what's going. Emma, great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Bill. Good morning. It's good to talk with you. Good to have you back here. The story, as we told it, as it was reported to you, of course, months ago, uh, by the premier himself, was that uh, that he and Steve Clark only found out about uh, these greenbelt ideas about pro- incursions into the greenbelt uh, a day or two before they made the public announcement about this. Uh, that it was a nonpartisan public servant group that came forward to them and said, "This is what you should do, Mister Premier." You've been doing a lot of digging on this, and and well, what you found out is not quite exactly what the premier said, is it? Not quite. It, <laughs> there seems to be more to the story at a minimum. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to note, like, the big parts of that story still don't quite answer all of the questions that we have, right? Um, you noted in your intro that the government promised a million times that it would never open up the green belt for development. Does it really sound plausible to you that a group of bureaucrats decided on their own with no direction from anyone else to upend a serious often repeated government promise. And that's kind of why we started digging into this, um, because that doesn't explain everything. And what we found is that it seems like the Premier's office was discussing something related to the Greenbelt months before the timeline that they've told us publicly. Now, we should also mention, by the way, that, that you were able to access some of these documents that you've been asking for. It took a long time. Uh, but boy, they use a lot of blank kicking over there, don't they? A lot of the stuff was redacted. Yeah, that's true. The document that we're talking about is an email and an attachment that was sent uh, from one member of Ford's inner circle to some other staff in the premier's office in August. Um, and the, the the slideshow, it's like that that is attached to the email. It's like over thirty pages of those. A couple are about the green belt, but really, it's like the entire thing is just redacted page after redacted page. Pretty much all we can see is exactly what I told you: who sent it to who and when. To the point, you know, where they said this was kind of what well, they presented to them and they decided, okay, let's look into this. Uh, but you've uncovered the fact that at some point they, they actually had what they called the Greenbelt files. So th- there's been a lot of work and a lot of back and forth conversations between somebody here. You Unfortunately, as you say, uh, the names and a lot of the details are blacked out. So I don't know if you're ever going to see that stuff. Uh, but it does indicate that this had been in the planning stages by somebody at Queen's Park for quite some time. Yeah, well, I want to be clear that there's a lot we don't know, too. Um, yeah. What we know is that, like, in the Premier's office, they were passing around this slideshow that included a couple pages about the green belt. But we don't know exactly what was in it. We don't know if that's exactly what they went with in the end. 
um, the the government has said that it's a, a broader cabinet document, which means the cabinet was looking at it and maybe looking at like some sort of other long range planning that in, involved the green belt somehow. We really don't know. Um, with the green belt files and that name, that came up actually because I requested this document through Freedom of Information. This gets like a little bit nerdy, but um, I filed <laughs> a second Freedom of Information request to see how they processed my first request. Um, and that was where the really interesting juice came out. That was where we were able to see the public servants had uh, nicknamed this, you know, the green belt files um, as they searched for documents for that first request. And that's where we really got to see the files themselves, um, all those redacted pages and <laughs> that little tidbit of information about the date. I, and we, and I know you've been doing this for a long, long time, but I just to, to tell our listeners, uh, you, you almost really have to, to parse what politicians say because they're very careful uh, when they, they start talking about, you know, their deniability and things of that nature, uh, the way that they phrase this. And, and the premier's never said we didn't do this. He just simply said the document, is, the, the assertions made uh, from what you've been able to ascertain and from others have been are, are not true. And, and and you don't have proof to the contrary, because like you say, you got a lot of pages with just black ink on them. Yeah, that's right. I think what we're trying to get at here is just expanding our knowledge about what we know. Um, sometimes when people see a story like this, they can extrapolate, oh, you know, the premier was working on the greenbelt changes. He was like selecting the parcels of land to, to take out back in August. We don't know that. Um, it's possible that the document is that, but, you know, for the record, the premier's office has denied that. Um, and we can take them at their word on it for now because we know that there are other investigations underway that, that might, you know, show us a different side of it if there is one. As your listeners probably know by now, the Auditor General is investigating this. So is the province's Integrity Commissioner. Right now, we're getting these little trickles of information through FOI and through um, sources and all these little things, but sooner or later, we're going to know more, too. To that point, though, Emma... Is, is there any one of those groups that are doing, as you say, parallel investigations here that would be able to access those unredacted documents and have, have a look at them? Uh, I, I'll go back. It's, it's kind of an apples and oranges thing. But, you know, when, when Robert Mueller was investigating the Trump organizations, et cetera, you know, during the presidential campaign, you read the, the Mueller report that's all redacted, but they, they weren't redacted when he got them. I mean, he they decided to do that sort of editing. Uh, can the Auditor General or anybody else actually demand it? I want to see these things before you start blocking everything out. That's one thing that I actually am not sure about, Bill, and it's one thing I'm really eager to see. Um, when I've asked the Auditor General and the Integrity Commissioner whether they've seen these documents, they're not able to tell me the answer. Um, and I understand that that's, you know, not to jeopardize their investigations. They have to keep that very clean and very uh, sacred within their circle as they work on it until it's done. Um, but if you, like me, are extremely eager to see what those investigations are going to find, I can tell you the Auditor General, at least, will have to wrap up hers by September. because her Yeah, she's out of a job by then, isn't she? She is. And so <laughs> whatever she's working on, we'll find out before she leaves. Well, we'll be watching for your reporting on this. And as always, uh, great work on this, Emma. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Bill. Always a joy. Take care. Emma McIntosh uh, from the Narwhal. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, we want to remember a, a great Hamiltonian. Margaret Jurovinsky, uh, as you've heard on the news uh, locally here, has passed away. Uh, she, of course, and her husband, Charlie, her late husband, Charlie, 
uh, donated tens of millions of dollars to the city's hospitals and healthcare research institutions, including Margaret's Place at St. Joseph's Villa in Dundas. President and CEO of St. Joseph's Villa, uh, Don Davidson, says that the Jurovinskis have a, a lasting impact in the city and, and they're never going to be forgotten. Look at every healthcare site throughout the city of Hamilton, including here in the town of Dundas. The Jurovinsky name lives on, and uh, Margaret and uh, Charlie will be looking down on all of us for every every bed that is filled in every facility. And uh, they'll be smiling, I'm sure, knowing that their money has made a difference. Yeah, well, I'll never forget that smile from either one of them, both Charlie and, and from Margaret as well. Uh, a good friend to both of them joins us now to, to talk about the contribution that these two incredible people have made to our community. Uh, he is uh, Ron Foxcroft, the CEO of Fluke Transport and the founder of Fox 40. Uh, Fox, great to have you on here. Uh, sad news about Margaret, but boy, uh, just as we were reminiscing about this last night, some great memories of, of these two uh, pr- on a personal level too, not just from a, a philanthropic level. They were fabulous people, weren't they? They were amazing people. Uh, Bill, I go back 50 years to when Margaret and Charles founded Wiltshire Construction in Dundas, yeah. Ontario, uh, 50 years ago. And, and you know what? They, they were the example of a team, of a partnership, of a partnership and team that had chemistry, had same strategic direction. Uh, and the other thing, Bill, I never, ever saw them when they were apart. Going back no. to wheelchair construction, that was before Flamborough Downs. And, of course, uh, Charlie met with MPP Ray Connell, and Margaret and Charlie and Ray Connell put uh, Flamborough Downs, which was an amazing project, a very difficult project. And make no mistake about it, Bill, Margaret was behind Flamborough Downs, and, and Charlie told me this just as much as Charles and Ray Connell were involved. And, you know, Bill, um, I my visits with them were, were very, very special. Charles laughed. He installed call display on his landline and you know that's amazing because a lot of people today bill don't have a landline and when you'd call to go and see them if margaret answers which wasn't all the time but she would answer and say i know why you're calling charles would answer and say what do you want (laughs) because they knew i was coming to ask for a gift for the St. Joe's Foundation, of course, uh, Don Fell, Mark Chamberlain, Sarah Felice Armenio were involved very, yeah. very much in all of the, uh, well, one in particular, the West Fifth Campus. And, and all these visits, Bill, I did, though, uh, and you know, Margaret is, is a legend. Uh, she's an icon right up there with the David Braley's, the Mike DeGroots, the Don Fells, the Bob Wade's people that have built this city, which includes Margaret and Charles. But I remember in particular, Bill, one visit. I said to Margaret, uh, what's your motivation to give to health care in Hamilton? And you know, Bill, it's been well documented on CHML that they have given tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. She said to me, our motivation, it was always our, our motivation was to help one patient one patient at a time. She said, that's our nugget, helping healthcare in Hamilton, one patient at a time. And so now, Bill, they have the most amazing legacy. Their legacy will live forever because of the memory of their amazing uh, generosity. 
I want to talk a little bit about them as individuals. I will get back to the philanthropy about this because it's, it's a key part of this, but they're both, you know, they're both Hamiltonians born and raised in Hamilton. Charlie told me they met when she was working at the, at the lunch counter, Woolworths, I think. Uh, they're both from the, the, the West or the Northeast part of the city, uh, you know, uh, and you know, cause you've t- talked to Charlie millions of times as I have. Uh, and you know, Charlie says, he says, you know, I, I'm built for business. He said, I graduated with honors. He says from the school of hard docs, that's where I yep. went to school. Uh, so he learned, I mean, you know, he says, I fell on my face a few times, learned from it and got back up and kept on going. He had a, this incredible drive, uh, and a great business sense. And, uh, he was a larger than life personality. And as you say, he was kind of unfiltered, wasn't he? I mean, he, he said what oh, yeah. was on his mind and, and that, that was part of his charm. I mean, he was a wonderful guy like that, a great sense of humor. Uh, and Margaret oftentimes was deemed to be the quiet one. Well, that's because Charlie kind of, you know, took up so much room in, in a, any place that he was at right now because of his personality. But both of them had this keen sense of business, didn't they? Oh, they did. I mean, they were not only married, but they were joined at the hip in, in the yeah. business community, in their strategic direction, in, in, in their charitable direction. And they were, you know, they were a, a good example that a sports team could learn from. Uh, I, I'm sure that they had many uh, robust uh, conversations about the direction that their philanthropic charitable donations would go in the locker room. <laughs> in other words, in the <laughs> kitchen. But in public. Uh, but I'll tell you, uh, Margaret, uh, Charles was always at the podium. Margaret was so proud of Charles. And just a couple of examples, Bill. When Charles was inducted into the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame for the great work he did in the horse racing industry, Margaret told me she was probably as proud or more proud of Charles for being inducted into the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame. But during the event, she turned to me and said, you tell Charles to keep that speech under two hours. (laughs) (laughs) He was allowed three minutes and she's, you know, she had that little cheeky sense of humor. But believe me, she was so proud when they made the significant gift to St. Joseph's Healthcare for the West Fifth Campus. I remember she was just beaming because that gift meant a lot to her. Uh, from her, a strategic point of view, she turned to me during the event and said, you know, Fox, we're going to help one patient at a time. And Charles got up there, and of course, he was the he was the speaker. He was the spokesman for the team. And I remember very well, he had a sense of humor as well. He got up there and he says, we are making this gift. And by the way, Fox, get your wallet out. <laughs> uh, he wasn't was shy about great. asking for stuff like that. And he was, uh, he was such a dear friend. Uh, I remember when, when Dan McLean, our good friend from uh, Channel 11, CH News, uh, was uh, was leaving the station. And we did, remember, we did the big roast for him up at Carmen's. We did. And, uh, yeah, Matt Hayes Dan and I the were the MCs. And, uh, and, and Charlie you know, insisted. He said, I want to, I got to speak. I got to speak. And he was just fabulous. Great sense of humor. Uh, knew how to throw a bar, but he did it with love. Uh, and he, he was always fabulous that way, but always there. And you know what else that really impressed me about these two? The picture in my mind, I'm always going to have, uh, they were married for a million years, uh, and loved each other dearly. Uh, and, and you'd see them together, like you say, everywhere holding yeah, hands. I everywhere. mean, they were, they were very much in love right up a, until Charlie passed away last year. And, and that, that, that I think is something that that always sticks with you that they were smart people, business people, but they they had so much love and respect for each other too. 
They did. Bill, I just saw Margaret a couple of months ago. It wasn't the same. Uh, Quite frankly, uh, she was sad. Uh, To me, my interpretation, she had a broken heart and was lonely and was missing Charles. But then I remember she uh, she said to me, I said, uh, Margaret, we all miss Charles. And and once again, her sense of humor, she said to me, you know, Fox, behind every smart man is a smarter woman. (laughs) And Bill, you and I relate to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Behind Bill Kelly is a very, very smart woman. And and when she said that, uh, you know, it it was meant in jest. Uh, But honestly, Bill, I thought of you. (laughs) Well, well, when he told... I thought of you, you and Marie too. I mean, the, it's yeah. but it's it's the story there. They just they 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 fed off each other, didn't they? They really did. And you know, Margaret. Uh, I mean, uh, we don't use that word icon very much, but with Margaret, I want to use the word legend, icon. Uh, Saint Joe's calls her formidable. I call her other things. Formidable, of course. Courageous, generous, wise, dedicated. And the most important thing, very caring. She cared about her community, and she cared about health care in her community. Just, uh, you know what, Bill? Her memory will never be forgotten because of the legacy of their, their generous giving everywhere across this city. A couple of things. First of all, you mentioned uh, Flamborough Downs, and I, I we could yes. spend a, an hour and a half just talking about that, about the success and the work that they put into that to make it go. Uh, but as as I found out, as as I got to know Charlie a lot better, uh, the influence he had on the horse racing industry uh, in general here in this province, he was a, a, a mover and and a and a real force here and a really strong advocate uh, for everybody involved in it, not just the the, the financial well being of horse, horse racing in this industry, uh, but of caring for the animals, of caring for the people in there, the the riders, and uh, he he elevated the whole the whole process, didn't he? He cared about it, Bill. The uh, horse racing industry, as you know, went through some very challenging times uh, while while Charles was uh, running Flamborough Downs. But he was actually the respected spokesperson for the horse racing industry. And you're right. He cared about those animals. He cared very much about those horses. He cared about animals, dogs, cats, horses. And he was actually the spokesperson the respected spokesperson, uh, but also, too, uh, his script was wordsmithed by Margaret. Margaret loved the industry, loved the Flamborough Downs, and, and as I said at the beginning, Bill, she was very involved when Charles and Margaret, and, and you remember MPP Ray Connell uh, yep. from, from the Ontario government. He was a very part of that original uh, uh, partnership, but Margaret... She was the glue. She was the foundation. She was the bricks. She was the. She was actually in there just as much as Charles and MPP Ray Connell, uh, and unpretentious too. I mean, you know, it was no question. You know what their wealth was, uh, you know, because they've given so much of it away to to the the healthcare and uh, people here in Hamilton area. Uh, but they they always you know that beautiful little place up in Greensville at the top of your Webster's yep. Falls and Dundas. 
uh, and that was home to them. And, uh, and, you know, they were quite happy there. Uh, and, you know, the neighbors loved them, uh, you know, because they were very unpretentious. Just every guy, he's the sort of guy that, that you wanted to just kind of lean over the fence and, and shoot the breeze with. I mean, they were, they were that pro- approachable all the time. Uh, but the dedication that they've made to healthcare is remarkable. And, and, and as Don Davidson from uh, St. Joe's Villa mentioned in the clip we played just before you joined us, yes. you can't go anywhere in the city now without knowing and, and seeing the presence and the contributions and the generosity of, of Margaret and Charlie. That makes me so happy, Bill, because their, uh, their legacy is they will never be forgotten. But, Bill, your listeners may not realize Charles and Margaret were not born with a silver spoon. Oh, Charles, no. I, I loved it when he told me what it was like uh, growing up in Saskatchewan in, in poverty. And he found his way to Hamilton with um, under $5 in his pocket when he arrived in Hamilton. He arrived, so he was not born with a silver spoon. He arrived from poverty in Saskatchewan forged out a tremendous life starting with Wilchar Construction, Margaret and Charles, and then, of course, Flamborough Downs, and we know the rest with their philanthropic uh, endeavors. But they did not come from wealth. They came from, and they never forgot their beginning. They never, they had a lot of heart. They, they really had, and, and so, so generous. And Bill, once again, and you've used the term, they were icons, but they were also icons and legends in this community. And uh, however, they, they will never be forgotten. Well, and their legacy will live on, not just because of the, the naming of, of some of these facilities in their honor, uh, but the legacy builds because of, of some of the institutions they started, you know, they've, uh, which will carry on, by the way, with donations and research, the Jurevinsky uh, Research Institute uh, that they formed uh, just a few years ago, as a matter of fact, uh, lives That's on right. and continues to do great work in this community. So it's it's not just the bricks and mortar that, that they've helped, and that's substantial, certainly. Uh, but it's the research and into healthcare and into making a better healthcare system that they've invested in, and those investments are going to continue. Yes, they uh, they were really dedicated to research and making the healthcare better, and actually making healthcare in Hamilton uh, world class. That was important. Yep. Uh, research in in healthcare, and as as you know, uh, just like the, the horse racing industry that went through challenges, the healthcare industry are are have been going through challenges for the last 25 years. So they they were very cognizant and dedicated to making significant investments into research and development in the healthcare and making healthcare in Hamilton uh world class. And and I just met her as I said a few months ago and uh and and it was at the uh, it was at the gift presentation by Dr. Marnix Hersink. Who, who donated $32 million. And Margaret was there just a few months ago. And as I said, she was very proud of the donation that was being made by Dr. Marnix Hersink. But uh, it was a little different, Bill, for me personally. It was the first time I had seen Margaret without Charles. And it, it just was not the same. So I am very pleased as a Hamiltonian that her memory will never be forgotten because of the, uh, the, the, the legacy that they have provided us one patient at a time. Absolutely. Uh, great memories uh, from two great people, and their memory will live on time and again. Uh, Fox, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill, and thank you for tributing uh, Margaret, Margaret Jarevinsky. 
well-honored and, and well-deserved as well. Ron Foxcroft from Fluke Transport. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.